What's up, guys? It's time for episode 10 of Believe in Queens. I'm Joe Serralo, joined as always by my man Tyler Ward, and for the second time by our newest co-host, former Met, Anthony Recker. The Mets have won six straight. Anthony, they're 5-0 and since you joined the show, so obviously things are going well over here. What, what can I say, guys? I mean, it's it's like when I played. Whenever I played, we won. When I didn't, I can't. I, it's not much I can do. I don't know. Uh, maybe they should have had you in that World Series roster, man. Things could have gone a little differently, you know? Would have been different. <laughs> exactly. Look, we would have got gotten more to... cheering from the dugout. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We've got a lot to get to. The Mets just swept the Marlins. Like I said, they've won six straight. We are less than 48 hours away from the trade deadline. And on August 2nd, as if the trade deadline wasn't the biggest news of the day, Jacob deGrom, for the first time in over 13 months, will be towing the rubber for your Metsies. Guys, let's start with this Marlins series. Sandy Alcantara, Friday night. Anthony, obviously, last episode, you weren't here. But Tyler and I spoke about how this was a pivotal game one because, you know, if the Mets won that game, they had a legitimate chance to sweep the Marlins. They won. They swept. But most impressively, in my opinion, they chased Sandy Alcantara after just five innings of work. The man hasn't failed to go six innings since May 6th. This was only the second time since May 6th that he didn't go seven innings. So, Anthony, as a former catcher, you look at a guy like Alcantara, what makes him so unhittable for the rest of the league? And when you look at how the Mets play against him, what about their approach is different than everyone else who can't touch him? Well, look, Alcantara is not – he's not a strikeout king, right? Like, he he's not – he's well below 9Ks uh, – yeah, a K per – 9Ks per nine innings, sorry. Um, a K per inning. Well below that. So, realistically, the when you get a Mets lineup as good as they are at putting the ball in play, I mean, this team doesn't strike out much. It's really impressive uh, to see them go about attacking a guy like Alcantara. Alcantara is going to come at you with the sinker, four seam at like 99, 100 at times – and then he's got a good slider and a really good changeup. That changeup is an absolute weapon. And that's the thing that I think a lot of uh, right-handers struggle with at times, and even lefties, just because left on right, right on left, that's typical. See the changeup. But he'll throw it to righties a lot. But this, this Mets team, they just do such a good job of putting the ball in play. What I really liked about the other night was they did such a good job as a team of putting together a game plan to make him work. Uh, you know, whether it's Jeff McNeil or Luis Guillorme or Brandon Nimmo or whoever is in the lineup that night, they have several guys that can foul balls off, that can keep at bats going, that can really make him work. And then outside of that, whenever he did make a mistake, my goodness, the Mets punished him. They hit some balls hard, whether it was Starling Marte or Brandon Nimmo, whoever it was, they hit some balls really hard that game. It was really fun to watch. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, not to say that I don't want to take any credits away from the Mets. You could tell Alcantara since the All-Star break, his last two starts haven't quite been the same, and I don't think he was the same either. Had some command issues. He had three walks in the five innings. But still, for the Mets to take advantage of it the way they did really takes a special roster, a special lineup, and, and really a special mindset going into it, and they did a very good job of that. Yeah, they definitely did. And Tyler, I'm going to get to you in a minute. But first, I do have to remind everyone that this episode of Believe in Queens is brought to you by our sponsors over at Bet Online. Head over to betonline.ag. You can get the latest odds, lines, developments in sports. Get your MLB bets in, get your NFL futures in. And for your 50% welcome bonus, use that code Believe50. That's B L E A V 50, Believe50, and let the games begin. Tyler, was this Alcantara start to you eerily similar? 
to the Mets games against the Braves, where they went up against an ace, a guy, you know, like Strider or Freed when we played Atlanta not too long ago, and they just made him work early and chase them before, you know, ultimately before five innings were up. Yeah, I think that's actually a great comp because going into this matchup, if you would have told me that the Mets would get him out in five for the first time since early May, the last time Sandy's done that this year. I, I I mean, don't get me wrong. I love this Mets team and I trust him a boatload, but I still would have been a little taken back. And that's exactly how I felt in this one. That's great when you look at Strider and Freed in the bow of the Max as we saw Max Scherzer come out on top as he usually does. And now advancing forward to this matchup for the Mets to jump on Alcantara I'm not going to lie. I was a little concerned in the beginning just because the Mets, they had multiple guys on. They had opportunities in the first, but didn't execute there. And I was like, okay, I hope that this is not something where it comes back to bite them in the ass a little bit. Should the Marlins get a lead sometime soon off of potentially Bassett? And then Sandy gets in a groove. You know, how many opportunities are you going to have against Sandy Alcantara? You just don't know. So to see Miami again score three runs, unfortunately, that, you know, it was some bad pitching there by Bassett in that matchup against Miguel Rojas. He got the bases clearing opposite RBI double, three RBI double. Mets down by three. However, Sandy did not have his stuff the majority of the game. And that's where the Mets were able to put the pedal to the metal still. And that was just huge for them. I mean, from Starling Marte, who's been looking phenomenal for the most part post-All-Star break, didn't look great in game two. He looked under the weather, didn't play in today's series finale at the time recording this. Didn't matter, though. We'll get to that game shortly. Lador, who's been owning Miami all year long. He continued that to start things off in this matchup. Daniel Volgoback, Joe, I'm going to want to know your thoughts on Daniel. I know you weren't a lover of the trade. I'm but coming around. Look, Bogey's an absolute beast. It's easy, right? When this man's been a doubles machine, I think he's 13 for 23 so far and getting on base so far as I'm at. I mean, for a guy roughly 300 pounds, a six-foot lefty bat, he's been absolutely phenomenal thus far for the Mets. And again, there's still expectations that the Mets are going to add more offensively that we'll deep dive later in the show when previewing the trade deadline. So, Joe, back to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me in this game one, I thought the biggest takeaway here wasn't just that they did damage against Alcantara, but it was the way that they came from behind. It was at that point, the second time in three games, we saw it game one against the Yankees, of course, where the Mets were facing a multi-run deficit either during or after the first inning. And this time it was against the front runner for the National League, Cy Young. The way that they just fought back, I mean, Anthony, isn't that what makes this team different from Mets teams in years past? Like 3 nothing a couple of years ago, game's over. Forget about it in the first inning. You know, now it's, hey, you know, we've got a lot of ball game left. Yeah, and what's funny is it's not just the offense, right? So they made the comeback, but then – you know, Bassett goes out and ends up recovering and ends up going, uh, you know, I believe six innings in the game, did a great job of just kind of steadying himself. And then the bullpen comes in and shuts it down. It was kind of a, that full team effort where they make the comeback, they eventually get the lead and they're able to, to seal it out. And I think that's where the difference is. Uh, at times you could see this team, you know, offensively go on a run or score some runs, but there would be parts of the game, whether it was defensively or the bullpen, there would be some kind of lapse somewhere else along the way and they would end up losing the game. That is what makes this team different. They seem to have that mental fortitude late in the game where if they get in a tight switch situation, a tight game, and, and maybe they did make a comeback, they have the ability to really lock it in and, and make some big plays, the small plays, and then that bullpen comes in and shuts it down. So it's a really interesting team right now it's it's a great time to think about the trade deadline because you almost wonder how many pieces do they need where do they need pieces because this isn't a team that needs a ton 
This isn't a team that needs a lot of work. This, I think they just need a few nice complimentary pieces and, and they're going to be set to go because of where they are right now mentally as a team and their ability to really uh, hone it in when, when it matters. You know, I was going to save this question for when we, you know, deep dive the trade deadline, but because you mentioned complimentary pieces, right? Like this is not a team with a glaring weakness. You could always use a reliever. You could always use depth, but they've already made a couple acquisitions. Guys like Vogelback, guys like Tyler Naquin, and Tyler and I were discussing this actually uh, yesterday, but I want to ask you, because you were on the 2015 team, how much do those two guys remind you of Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe when they came in, obviously, pre-Cespedes, pre-Clippard? Yeah, I mean, look, there's definitely comps to make. When Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe came in uh, to that roster on that team, the depth that they gave us and le the legitimacy that it gave us as far as options off the bench, options to give guys breathers or just guys, they look, they could still go out and play. So uh, whether they were pinch hitting, whatever they were doing, you knew when you put them in, they've been in those situations. Uh, you knew you were going to get great ABs out of them and you knew that they could handle themselves in the biggest of situations. I can remember Uribe having a big walk-off hit off the left center wall, one of the games, and Kelly Rogers, Johnson right? just always put together great, great ABs. It was just a really – they were a really good pair, uh, you know, to basically come together and be a part of, of that roster. And, yeah, I mean, there's definitely comps to make. Uh, Vogelbach and Naquin, they don't have that experience, right? But these are two guys who, when I look at Vogelbach, this guy puts together awesome maybes. I remember playing against him in the minor leagues, and I remember, uh, you know, just watching him over the last couple of years. I love the way he puts together abs. He never takes a pitch off. He never gives you a break. Uh, he's he never he doesn't go out of the zone very often. And when he does put the bat on the ball, I mean, this guy can hit it as hard as anybody. So great guy to have on your on your bench or as a DH option. Tyler Naquin, I love the way this guy plays the game. I got to play with him a little bit in Cleveland. Uh, in spring training and in AAA, this guy would run through the wall for you. He had super talent. I'm talking this guy had pop. He could hit for average. He could run. He played a great outfield at the time, had a good arm. Um, you know, since then, he's had some injury issues and things have slowed him down, but he still has the ability. And so I love that pickup for them as a, as a fourth outfielder or potentially, you know, look, if somebody goes down, the Mets have been very healthy for the most part this year. If somebody goes down, he is a great, great next outfielder to step up and really take charge of any of the three spots because he can play any of them. Uh, I think he's best in right field, to be honest with you, because I know he does have a, a pretty good arm, uh, but I've seen him play center. I've seen him play left. I, I like him anywhere on the field. Yeah, he's got good speed. And then offensively, 70 RBI a year ago as a rookie in 2016, third place in the American League Rookie of the Year voting. The guy to have him on your bench, you know your team's pretty deep. Tyler, shifting over from, we spent a lot of time on game one of the Marlins series to game two. Jeff McNeil, up until these final two games of the Mets-Marlins series, had one multi-hit game in July, came on the 4th of July at Cincinnati. He's got two in a row now. What's the big takeaway watching McNeil and the at-bats he's putting together? He looks like peak Jeff McNeil with his approach at the plate, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. McHits is back. It's as simple as that. He had a piss missile in the third. I knew that, okay, the fifth bomb of the year. I'm feeling great about this. But as we get into game three, too, I mean, he's putting up consecutive, consistent at-bats now. Something that, you know, he was struggling. Let's not forget, as you said, only one multi-hit game so far in the month of July. It wasn't looking great with batting average. Not that batting average means everything because it doesn't. But you could tell that he just was a little bit more pressing than usual than we've seen earlier on in the year. So 
for Jeff to kind of step out of this, to have a series in Miami as well. Again, let's just be real here. As much as these divisional games are important, when you're facing the Miami Marlins and the matchup that we currently have with the opposing roster, there's no denying that this is a matchup that you should take full advantage of. I like the fact that especially out of these pitching matchups that somehow Nick Nider ended up being the biggest prom for the Mets here. However, that wasn't a prom for Jeff McNeil to have his multi-hit game. So for his ability not to just get that bomb, you know, when needed, but also always hit for opposite field, gain a double down the line. Jeff just looks locked in. He's back. He's had elite caliber defense at second, which we'll see him in for the majority of the year now, now that they acquire Naquin. That way you're not going to see Jeff as much in the corner and left. So I'm really happy with what I saw from McNeil and the Mets overall. Again, didn't have as much of an offensive breakout as maybe you'd imagine here in game two, but they surely got the do- uh, the jo- uh, job done. It was backed by some phenomenal pitching. Thank you, Cookie Carrasco, for his 100th victory. That was something special. Yeah, and that's the story of the game, right? Cookie Carrasco obviously getting his 100th win, but what was it, seven and two-thirds of shutout ball. He was sensational. Anthony, when you look at this guy, he had an ERA over six in the month of June. In July, he's pitched to a .9 ERA. He's 3-0 and in five starts. What's different? Look, Cookie, when he is right, that fastball jumps and that changeup is is really really good. Um, you know, he look he's got breaking balls. He throws his slider a decent amount, and it's always been a pretty good pitch for him. But for me, it's always been about his fastball. When when that thing's right, it's got good four seam ride, and that changeup plays off of it really well. So I, I can remember catching him in sixteen in spring training, and and just thinking, man, this dude he he spots up well. He's got good stuff. He was 95, 96 at the time. Good changeup, and those were really one and two for him. It was fastball changeup, and then he threw the slider. The slider's become a much bigger part of his repertoire. But to me, I just love seeing him attack the zone, attack hitters, get after them, and not try to nibble because that's not who he is. He's not a nibbler. He's not someone who's going to paint the corners and and you know and try to strike you out looking. He wants swings. He wants contact. He wants pop ups. He wants swings and miss. And he's going to attack you. And that's what I see from him. Just in a more aggressive career. Go and he's really doing a nice job of just commanding the zone and commanding the at bats, really taking strike one and then going from there. Yeah, I think aggressive is the perfect word to use there because when you looked at it, when you, when you watched him pitch, he looked confident. He looked like he was in control. Like you said, he was the one commanding the at bats. And I mean, it's been a hell of a month right now. The Mets, I think, have the two front runners for National League Pitcher of the Month in July. I mean, you've got Carrasco, three and zero with the point nine ERA. And then you've got Scherzer. His record's only one and one in July, a one four ERA, but 12 and a half Ks per nine in the month. His strikeouts since returning, he's been off the charts. It's like right now, you know, we're, we're obviously going to get to this. We get to Grom back in, in less than 48 hours, but Carrasco and Scherzer might have been the two best pitchers in the National League in July. And oh, by the way, Taiwan Walker didn't look I was going to say, don't forget about Ty. He's been <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't look his best today against the Marlins, but I mean, he's had a sensational season. Now, Tyler, ties start today. This game, I mean, look, maybe he kind of took off because of how much offense he got. Anthony, maybe, you know, you can attest to seeing that happen in the past with pitchers. Team jumps out to a huge lead. They take their foot off the gas a little bit. But Tyler, for you, what's your biggest takeaway? Because there's so many. I mean, 19 hits for the Mets in this one. Walker looked good, finished just shy of a quality start. What what, what was your biggest takeaway with the sweep? 
My biggest takeaway is that the Mets went into this series with Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez and said, piece of cake. That's simply put. I mean, they come out, you get 19 hits a season high. Thank you. The 19th hit was Daniel Volgaback because we love that man. I mean, the Mets just from the start jumped on Pablo Lopez and they never looked back. And that was the beauty of it. They took advantage of basically every single opportunity given them here. And even when Lopez tried to get himself in a little bit of a groove, it just didn't last long. The Mets were the first team this year to score six earned runs off of Lopez. He only won 2.2 innings. I mean, I'm baffled just saying that. That's how consistent this offense was. And this is, again, while you had Naquin starting Marte at the off day because he looked brutal at the plate in game two, even though Lindor thrived in Puerto Rican night. He went three for four. That was awesome. Lindor had a great day at the plate today as well. I mean, three for five for himself. Pete Alonso finally started hitting this series, had offers in the first couple of games, went two for five, started the offense early for the Mets in this one, went opposite field RBI double after Lindor hit things off first right before him in the first inning. I mean, the Mets just put the pedal to metal again consistently in this one and going down the list. Jeff McNeil had another big game, not just two hits, but three hits for the first time in a while for McHits. You love that from him. Have himself a double in an RBI, the same exact stat line as Lindor. Volgaback, who I didn't even have in my top five that I did in my postgame show today. He had a strong day, as always, two for four that you saw there. Tyler Naquin, his first base knock as a York Met, is an RBI triple. We take that to the bank. That's fantastic. And Mark Hanna, he was my biggest takeaway. Canna, let's not forget, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but after game one when the Mets won thanks to the Brandon Nimmo bomb late in the eighth, he said, you know, appreciate Nimmo with that big hug, saying that, you know, I left a small village on the base pass today, so I'm glad that Nimmo got us the win. However, Canna, first pitch he sees today, he gets himself an opposite field RBI base knock, three for five today, had himself two RBIs in the first three innings. He's probably my biggest takeaway offensively. For a guy that, again, struggled mightily with runners in scoring position against Alcantara, not a problem whatsoever here in Game 3 of the series finale, that being against Pablo Lopez. Yeah, look, not only did every Met have a hit in this game today, seven of the nine starters had multiple hits in this one. Pablo Lopez, 2.7 ERA against the rest of baseball, 6.1 in his four starts against the Mets this season. They have just absolutely had his number Anthony, I alluded to this briefly before, but I want to ask you, Taiwan Walker started off great, looked sharp as hell, didn't finish the way he wanted to. You saw he was frustrated in the dugout after he came out, five and two-thirds, three earned, just shy of a quality start, even though to me that's a stat that doesn't mean a whole lot. But when you see a pitcher, uh, when rather, when you're dealing with a pitcher who sees his team jump out to an early lead, is it hard sometimes to stay engaged when you're up 7 nothing? And you kind of just put it on cruise control a little bit. It's not so much the score of the game. Uh, a lot of the time what happens is your team goes out and they put up those runs. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. <laughs> and they were. They were racking up hits and putting together great ABs and making Lopez work and making that bullpen work. So realistically what it does is every inning he comes in and he's just sitting and sitting and sitting and unless you have a pretty good routine unless you're able to hop you know maybe down in the cage throw a few pitches whatever uh sometimes you could just you could just get stiff and then you get back out so you don't feel as good as you did in those first couple innings when you went out and you were hot from your warm-up so a lot of time that's that's what can happen it's not so much the score or letting the foot off the gas it's just you just don't feel as good because you've been sitting on the bench for too long because your team's doing too good of a job scoring runs. Um, and that, that's a tough balance. That's a really hard one to figure out, uh, you know, when to go down and throw a little bit more because you don't want to tire yourself in, you know, in the bullpen or I should, should say in the in the cage in the tunnel either. Um, and in Miami, it's tough to do. You got to go all the way up to the clubhouse and then you got to 
the, the cage is actually in the back of the clubhouse. It's kind of a long walk. So I doubt he wanted to do that. So it was pretty much just hanging out in the, in the dugout until it was time for him to, to go out there on the field. And that's not easy to do. So as a catcher, you're just trying to keep him engaged. Um, but realistically, it's just a matter of physically being able to go out there and feel your best. Now, look, I, you know, I have to ask this because I know people out there are wondering, I'm high on Taiwan Walker. I think that he's legitimate, the real deal. But a year ago, he turned out a 7-3 first half and finished 0-8, finished the year 7-11. So because he didn't look his sharpest and because the Yankees touched him up a little bit, even though I thought that that was a gutsy, great performance from him considering what happened in the first inning, do you have any concerns surrounding Walker for the rest of the year based on what we've seen in past years? Not at this moment, no. These two games were not even close to enough to make me worry about him. Um, I think last year, look, this guy was coming off of basically Justin Verlander's zone, like not pitching for two years, and he doesn't have the the database of 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 play that that Verlander does, where he's coming back off those two years and still feeling like himself, like Verlander is this year. He doesn't have that, you know. He's not that kind of a guy. Um, not that far into his career. So realistically, that was his time. That last, the second half last year was his time. He got tired. He got worn down, and it was a really tough ending. And he didn't know how to make the adjustments. I believe in this kid. I love him. I, you know, I got to play with him a little bit in Arizona too. Uh, got to catch him a couple times. He's an awesome person. Awesome guy. He works really hard, and he cares more than you'll know about how, you know, his performance out there on the mound. So I believe he's going to continue to make any adjustments necessary. And he, I, I guarantee you, he learned a lot from last year in, in what happened to him and going into this year, preparing his body, preparing himself and continuing to do so throughout the season, especially towards the second half. I guarantee he had it eyed up and ready to go that he was going to come out and give the second half everything he had to into the stretch run and make it a nice run for the Mets. Yeah, look, I think we're all in the same boat here. I mean, you know, like I said, I had to ask because of what we saw last year in the second half. I'm sure people are wondering. I'm not worried in the slightest about Ty. You look at today and like you said, you know, the Mets had five hits in two separate innings in the first five innings today. That's a lot of time on the bench for Walker. Yeah. I'm not worried at all. He's been one of the sharpest, most consistent pitchers in baseball. I still think he was one of the biggest snubs from the National League All-Star team this year. I, I think he had a better first half this year than he did a year ago. But Tyler, speaking of great pitching, We've got to look ahead because for the first time ever as New York Mets, Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom are going in the same series. They're going back to back. The Nationals are 30 games behind the Mets in the standings going into this one. Tyler, how excited are you for this series? And of course, Tuesday night to see Jake. So I, I tweeted this out right before we started recording here tonight. And what I said was, has it really kicked in for Mets fans yet that Jacob DeGrom, casually the best pitcher on this planet, for quite a while now is back in this rotation while the Mets have handled things without him perfectly fine all year, a team 27 games above 500 and your biggest trade deadline acquisition. As much as I hate to quote Brody Van Wagen and he's true here, it is internally with Jacob deGrom. It's a fact. So, I mean, when you look at the fact that he's finally returning, he honestly gets, this is a perfect matchup in my opinion to start as well. Going up against a bottom fear in the nationals helps him get adjusted. Yes. You have to deal with Soto, but the Mets have combated Soto pretty well, assuming he's not dealt at the deadline. So that's actually a big question as well. But my initial reaction is I'm just pumped up. Just thinking about it has me in a whirlwind of emotions. I think once we get closer to the time, actually the day, this Tuesday, the day of the deadline, once the deadline's done and Jake is towing the rubber, that is really when I think it's going to fully sink in as a genuine Mets fan and say, wow, this is happening. The same way I think a good comparison for me is 
And the first game that I went to this year was the second game this season in D.C. to see Max Scherzer's Mets debut. That felt surreal. Even when I was there, I was like, I couldn't believe my eyes. Like, wow, Mad Max is really in a Mets uniform right now. I think a lot of Mets fans are going to have that similar feeling with Jake on the bump again. And Jake said it himself today that he was in an interview. He said it's going to feel like his debut again. Like, he's excited. He knows the nervous jitters are going to be there again. Hasn't pitched on the bump for the Mets in 13-plus months. So this isn't just a lot for us Mets fans to take in. It's a lot for him as well. And I think it's really going to be something special. Are you nervous at all, given his last minor league rehab outing when he gave up the two homers and the four earned over four innings? Nah, nah. I mean, to the guys that hit the bombs off him, congratulations. You're going to go <laughs> yeah. far. You're going to do great things in the league. I'm not concerned the slightest, okay? That was just, again, a tune-up for Jake. He's going to be perfectly fine. And I'm, I will even go as far as to say is I'm not even concerned if Jake doesn't go out there and have the best outing known to man through his first couple. He needs to ramp up. He needs to get acclimated. As long as he's not the sole X factor in the Mets losing a ball game, there's nothing to worry about there. So, yeah, to simply put uh, answer your question, no, I wasn't concerned with him giving up a couple home runs in his final rehab stint. Well, look, the reason I asked you that is because I wasn't going to ask Anthony, because, Anthony, I know that you don't care at all about how that rehab uh, assignment went his last start out there. He even said he was dealing with some leg cramps. You know, it was a day game after a night game. You know, the, the conditions just led to whatever happened. But I know you're not concerned. What's the biggest thing you're looking for from Jake here? I mean, it could be like a triple-A start, you know, Soto, Josh Bell, Nelson Cruz. We don't know if they're even going to be nationals come Tuesday night. So he could be facing, you know, the better part of a triple-A lineup. He's probably on a 75, 80 pitch count limit. What's your biggest thing to look for? Yeah, look, I'll be honest. Before I get into DeGrom specifically, I'm I'm interested to see how the Mets handle this. Uh, we've seen them put the white gloves on when it comes to handling DeGrom in the past. Um, are they going to continue to do that? And how long are they going to continue to do that for? I think they're going to do it, obviously, for these first couple starts. I'm really interested to see if they let him go at any point during this regular season, if they just let him go out there for 100, 110 pitches, go six, seven, eight innings. That'll be really interesting to see. Um, as far as Jake goes, when this guy's right, it's four seam, top of, top of the zone, middle of the zone. Uh, he'll sometimes come in on lefties but for the most part top of the zone that slider down and in the lefties down and away to righties uh to his glove side and the change up down and down and in the, to righties down and away to lefties arm side uh he really doesn't vary from that it's almost like a triangle that's where he throws his three pitches and that's it so i'm interested to see if you know if he's able to continue that if he's able to hit his spots like that uh you know right out of the gate because it's been a long time for him to be out in a competitive game you know he's threw a couple of spring training games. He threw a couple rehab games now, obviously, but uh, this is going to be the first time he's under the, the lights again. And I just want to see how that kind of affects him. Is he able to kind of bring it together and, and hit his spots? Because what makes him great, it's it, outside of just the stuff that he has, it's the command that he has. He doesn't walk anybody. He hits his spots. He doesn't make mistakes. When he does make a mistake, ooh, hey, I lost an earbud. <laughs> when he does make a mistake, it's out of the zone. It's it's you know it's a good miss. That's what makes him great. He he never ever. I mean, it's so rare for him to make uh, you know mistakes over the heart of the plate. And mm -hmm. so I'm I'm just interested to see if that's the Jake we're going to get. And by the way, one of those guys we had a homer off him, Drew Waters, just got traded from yeah. Atlanta. And this guy is very very good. He hasn't had a great year this year. 
Um, and I know his his star has taken a little bit of fall, hence the, re the reason he got traded. But uh, this guy's very, very good, and he will be good when he gets to the big leagues. I'm really glad that you brought him up because I know that one of the bigger factors in why he was dealt was the rise of Harris III now for Atlanta, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I'm really curious to see what Drew Wires is going to do. I think that that was a really solid move. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. That's definitely a good point. Little so, wake up call for him too. I guarantee it. Like, oh, I got <laughs> traded. Whoa, yeah. You, you I mean, it feels good to get traded because the other team wants you, but you're always wondering why you got traded. And I think that might be a nice little wake up call for that guy. For sure. And, and so, Anthony, when when you look at Jake, and you mentioned, you know, his arsenal right there, and how he likes to live up in the zone with that fastball, right? Can you explain as someone who's caught him, as someone who's caught a lot of great pitchers in this game? Obviously, anyone who follows baseball, you know, the term rising fastball. But you know that there's actually no such thing unless you're a submariner as a literal rising fastball. So when you have a guy like Jake, who's all arms and legs, gets low, has a huge stride, right? What about that fastball makes it appear to hitters like it's actually coming upwards and makes it almost unhittable? Well, he has he has great uh, spin rate on his fastball. And outside of that, he gets fantastic extension. He uses that frame. Great stride in his in his uh, in his delivery and then he gets that arm out there and it's really it's it's all about kind of the perceived velocity right so as a hitter when you get a ball that's got some movement to it it gives you some depth it gives your literally it gives your eyes depth you see the ball a little bit better when that thing is a little straighter it doesn't have as much drop to it doesn't have as much movement uh horizontally to it that becomes much harder to pick up and to time essentially to see as well and so that thing can get on you in a hurry, especially with someone like Jake, as tall as he is with the extension that he gets and the backspin that he gets, it stays so straight. Um, and it just really jumps on you as a hitter. You put that into account with the fact that uh, I wouldn't say he hides the ball well, but he's got such a smooth delivery. And when that thing comes out and it explodes, it, it's, it feels like two different movements. You see a guy so smooth out there, so easy, and then the ball jumps on you. That's a tough thing to adjust for as a hitter timing-wise. Uh, just everything Jake does. I mean, his, his like I said, his stuff is great, but then you put it together with the whole package and everything that he does, the consistency, um, the physical – you know, there's just this physical body, the way he gets so long and he can get out there and get such great extension, all that tough stuff together. The perceived velocity is unbelievable. And it looks more like 105 than it does 100. All, all this talk about him, I can't help but smile. I'm getting so excited knowing that he's going to be back and him and Max are going to be back to back in this rotation. I mean, I can't wait. Tyler, you used the, uh, the Brody Van Garbage line before about, <laughs> you know, Jake might be our biggest acquisition. And look, he very well might be. There's legitimacy to that. But we've got to talk actual acquisitions, actual trades. Like I said earlier, we're less than 48 hours away from the deadline. We're going to be coming back to you. It's a quick turnaround. Instead of waiting for the conclusion of the Nats series, we're going to have a new show out Wednesday morning. We're going to record Tuesday night after Jake starts, after the deadline's complete. So in the next less than 48 hours, Tyler, what is the biggest move that you're hoping for? And also, realistically, what do you think is going to be the first domino to fall for the Mets? Great question. And I'm, and I myself, I'm trying to follow along with everything that's been reported and figure out what is best for the Mets. Because right now what is out there is simply that both the Cubs, the Red Sox, they want a top five prospect for either J.D. Martinez and a Vasquez or Wilson Contreras and a Robertson. And who, they, who are they all hunt up on? It's Mark Vientos. And that's exactly what the Mets don't want to do. They don't want a PCA 
2.0 situation that they had happen with a Zach Scott and a Sandy Allerson type group that at the time was under a lot of pressure to go after a big name and land a big name. And they did that. But of course, the circumstances were not making playoffs and then bias walking, which again made sense for the Mets given he got, you know, an opt out after two years. So it's not necessarily a long term deal per se if he opts out. But going back now to here, the Mets are in a different spot. They don't have the pressure on them from Steve Cohen like they did last year with, again, a team last year that was anemic with their offense. They need to address things. The Mets, again, when you're roughly 30 games above 500, you just want to add the right pieces and you don't want to overpay. I think Billy Epper is coming in and is trying to make a statement that's saying, hey, we're not just going to throw away our top prospects, regardless on how well we did in the draft. We want to keep Vientos just as much to similar wavelength as we want to keep Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty. You know, they don't want to part with these guys for rentals, and I don't blame that about them at all. So, in my opinion, what I truly hope the Mets do is the Cubs. Now, the Cubs' asking price is really high right now, and the belief is that the Mets are not going to budge if the Cubs don't budge. They will pivot elsewhere. However, I think just the appeal with Wilson Contreras, a guy that, again, has been hitting a little bit better as of late. He's had a little bit of a slump prior, but he's definitely been doing better over his past couple of games, I believe. He's someone that can come in. He has some really strong advanced numbers through baseball. Savant with his exit below. He's expected by an average of solid. He's just someone that I think can come in and really round out this Mets team. And with the idea potentially that one of McCann or Nido was dealt the other way, not saying it will happen, that has been thrown out there as a potential fit, then that gives you the idea that maybe the Mets still go out and land another batch they wish because they have room at the time, assuming that one or both of Dom Smith and J.D. Davis are dealt. So I think from an actual value perspective of the Cubs and what the Mets potentially need the most in addressing areas of need, that's why I think the Cubs are the best fit. You get Contreras, he can DH slash catch. He's not going to be catching every day should he come to the Mets, even if a catcher goes the other way because you have to get familiar, of course, with the pitching staff. And I think, Rec, you could probably understand that one, right? So you get him, you get David Robertson. That's the reliever that the Mets want the most right now, reportedly. But I think something that very well can happen is a J.D. Martinez and a Christian Vasquez. I don't think it's going to have to cost you as much as Contreras, because while Martinez's numbers are really strong this year, he has struggled with back spasms. That is a concern that teams that are trying to go after him are weighing right now. He would be a great get. He's raking against lefties, just like Contreras. But then you add a Vasquez, and you kill two birds with one stone. The Mets don't just have their offense figured out then, but they also have the backstop figured out too, which is huge. So, I mean, personally, it's a 1A, 1B situation. I truly hope the Mets go down one of these routes. All I know is that if they go down the Red Sox route, they are going to have to land a reliever elsewhere. I don't think they want a Jake Diekman that's had a Jekyll, not Jekyll and Hyde, but kind of an up and down year uh, where they could potentially get, I don't know, an Andrew Chafin, a Michael Fulmer, or even a Gregory Soto, one of those three relievers from the uh, Detroit Tigers is appealing to me. So there's options out there. The prices are high. I think they're going to drop by time we get down to the final hour, if not sooner, this August 2nd for the trade deadline. But Rest assured, Billy Upper is not just going to part ways with top prospects for the sake of doing it. The Mets are showing that they're disciplined and that this is very much a different front office than what the Cubs and other teams saw just a year ago. Anthony, what are you thinking about the latest with the deadline? Yeah, I think for me, I really like the idea of getting Wilson Contreras. I love the idea of him being able to catch some games for them, but also DH. I think that kills two birds with one stone because – when you need the offense and you want him to be in there as your catcher, because realistically, you know, you need to score some runs. 
when you've got Jake on the mound, it's not going to be hard for this guy to understand his game plan to go out there and execute it. He's so good. A guy like Max might be a little bit different. Like he, he likes to do lots of different things to lots of different hitters. He'll throw anything in any count. That's a different scenario. But I could see Wilson going out there and handling Jake just fine and some of these other guys as well. So I, I love that fit. I don't think they need to make uh, a two-man you know, exchange with, with one team. I don't think they need to get Contreras and Robertson. I don't think they need to get Martinez and Vasquez because that's when you do start to add the amount of prospects or the type of prospect that you have to put in a deal. If you just get one guy from these teams, uh, you know, whether it's a Contreras and then maybe uh, – I don't even think you need a Martinez or a Vasquez in that scenario. Obviously, you already have a catcher, and then I think he fills that DH role between him or Pete playing some DH because Vogelbach can play first or Vogelbach DHing. Um, I don't think you have to go there. So that's why I love Contreras. Maybe you can focus on just some peripherals as far as making your team a little bit better defensively, whether you do move a Dom or a JD to get some more athleticism on that bench because you start to acquire a lot of DHs in that scenario. Um, you know, but then then it becomes more about the bullpen. And to me, that's what it's all about. I love the fact that this team is going to have so many options. They've already said Tyler McGill, when he comes back, he will be in the bullpen. This guy is going to be really fun to watch. Uh, David Peterson's going to be an option. Obviously, we saw that not go well the other day uh, and he got options since. But he's going to go down and work on that, I'm sure. I'm sure they're not just going to have him go out there and start every fifth day. I'm sure they're going to kind of bring him in out of the bullpen sometimes and just get him used to that. So when it comes time, he will be ready to do that because I think his stuff could play very well out of the bullpen still. So it's not going to take a ton of arms. It's really just about finding those little pieces, the complementary pieces to get them through the rest of the season. If you look at the schedules right now, the Mets line up really, really well the rest of the way. Outside of the Braves, and they play, they have one series with the Dodgers, they don't have a ton of tough matchups. You look at the Braves necessarily, they've got a lot more on their plate coming down the stretch as far as teams are going to have to play to get in. The Phillies have a very nice schedule, but they're nine and a half back. I'm not too worried about them unless they make a ton of moves. So realistically, it's all about getting into the playoffs. This Mets team, unless the wheels completely fall off, which is not going to happen, this team is getting to the playoffs. And as long as they're healthy, they have the complementary pieces because when they get these pieces, they can use them to give other guys rest and keep them fresh. I think this team is going to be set up very well for the postseason. Yeah, look, this isn't 2007. This isn't 2008. This team is not going to go through a September collapse. First off, you mentioned their scheduling. I believe in August, it's their toughest uh, singular month schedule of yes. the season. Mm -hmm. But in September, it's their second easiest. Only July easier really easy. than September. That September so. schedule sets up really well for them. Yeah, but, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to more so than the strength of schedule and all that, it's it's Buck Showalter, right? It's, you know, mm -hmm. Willie Randolph was great for a while. He got the Mets, you know, back after some rough years in the early 2000s after they went to the World Series. They stumbled. Randolph picked him back up. Jerry Manuel did it for most of the year, but we've got Buck Showalter. You know, this is the first time in Tyler and my lifetime where the Mets have had, you know, at least that we can remember because Bobby Valentine, we were babies that the Mets have had a manager who you can really just blindly trust to lead the way. So there's going to be no collapse. Now, I want to ask you, I'm actually going to pose this question to both of you, but Anthony, I'll start with you. Mark Vientos, right? Obviously, the guy's got insane pop. He's tearing it up in the minors. The other day, the Mets sat him because, you know, there were rumors he might have been traded. What did he do? Come, He came off the bench, ninth inning, pinch hit tater. Yeah, exactly. But when you look at the Mets, I mean, Vientos is a corner infielder and a DH. And we've got Pete Alonzo, hopefully, for the rest of his career. We've got Brett Beatty, who I think is going to provide the most continuity at the hot corner since David Wright. 
It's like, I don't know if I see Vientos as a part of this team's long-term future. So when Contreras can really make an instant impact and help you get a ring this year, Robertson might come over in that deal as well. We'll see. Why do you think they're so reluctant to deal Vientos? Is it just because they maybe want to make him a DH in the future? Do they maybe want to see if Soto is still a national, if Vientos in the winter can be part of a package? What, what do you think the rationale is there? Well, I think that this is this is one of the things that I think us as fans, and we're not in that in those GM meetings, you know, sometimes we can get a little carried away with, oh, is this guy, he's going to be a third baseman. He's going to be a star third baseman. He's going to be this. These, these big prospects get traded, you know, pretty often. Yeah. And it's not that often that they all pan out, that they all are great. Um, you know, you could look at that Chris Archer deal and what the Rays got back for him. And that's crazy because all those guys panned out. And yeah. wow, were the Pirates stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that often that things oh, like that man. happen. So realistically, for the Mets, it's about holding on to as many assets as they possibly can. And I hate saying that about players because I was one of those guys that was an, an asset. And it's it's terrible. Like, these guys are people. It, it sucks that they're, you know, end up being these business chips, essentially. But realistically, that's what it is. It's about just trying to always make sure that when you're making a deal, you get as good of a deal as possible. Look at what the, the Mets gave up for uh, Francisco Lindor. And they end up signing him to that huge deal. And this is nothing against Lindor. He's having a, a fine season. I would say I expected more from him. And I think he does too. But Andres Jimenez has turned into a star. I mean, this guy is incredible for Cleveland. So I think there's, there's always the worry that when you give up these guys that that could happen. But you also know that if you hold on to all of them, only one or two of them really is going to be impactful. There's not that many that are going to be impactful. So you want to keep them in-house. You want to build up that system as much as you can. You look at a team like the Dodgers. We've we've heard the Mets say they want to be like the Dodgers. These guys are doing such a great job at bringing up talent and, and developing them. And they're playing for the team or they're trading them away. Or they just have so many pieces that they can move around that they, they just – it seems – I mean, it seems – unfair like they just go about business they can trade some prospects away they got more that come up that play great for them they've got you know then they've got they make big free agent signings there's ways to do this but you've got to build up that system first and i think the mets they were coming from such a dry barren minor league system a few years ago because they had traded away some prospects and they had treated it like a revolving door now they're starting to hold on to it you're starting to see that minor league you know prospect uh, bunch really come together. They want to hold on to it for at least another year, as long as they can, just to make the off season and going into next season, it's going to make things so much more simple for them. If they have injuries, Hey, we'll call this guy up. We don't have to go make a move. Hey, if, you know, if we really want to go get a guy, we have this stock of, of prospects right now that we can go trade for them. You don't have to do it in season when necessarily things, prices can be crazy high yeah. and it's, it's just not a good way to do business. So I think right now they're just really trying to hold on to their hand, hold on to what they have. And I, I completely agree with that, that methodology. It's hard because you want your team to just go for it and give up whoever it takes. But I promise you in a couple of years, you're going to be pissed because you're going to be like, why don't we have any prospects to bring up? What's going on? And that's what happens. And realistically, I think the Mets are doing just such a nice job of making sure that they are focused on that right now.
And I will say when, you know, you touched on the price, obviously right now being so much higher because of desperation than it will be in the winter. That's what's making me think maybe they're holding on to Vientos because in the winter, if Soto is still a national, maybe Vientos is part of a package that they would try to send down to DC. Tyler, what do you think about that possibility? And what would you be willing to give up for Contreras? And let's just say Contreras and Robertson. That's the package deal. It's been talked about so much. Do you think Vientos would be an appropriate piece to give up for those two guys? So I have a lot of different takes regarding Vientos because Get into with, all of them, man. Yeah, with what you're seeing right now, I think first and foremost, what the Mets are doing is making a statement, right? Because they've shown in years prior they're pretty easy to work with. You know, Brody had no problem thro- throwing the farm away. We saw again PCA get dealt because of a desperation tactic by the Mets. I think more than anything, the Mets just want to prove right now that they're not going to be nearly as easy to part with top prospects. However, they do have a lot of assets on the roster and deeper in the farm. That should be enough to have a deal happen just on a deal that, again, is more of a wavelength where both teams are somewhat winning versus it being completely lopsided. And while I don't agree with the notion that, uh, for example, the Mariners trade that just happened for Castillo was a complete fleece by the Reds, the Reds, however, prospect-wise, got everything in their mother. So they got a huge haul for that. And that's something where you look at what the Mets are doing right now with Vientos. I really think they're trying to make that statement there. And right now, it's been reported that Apparently, the Mets are okay. They're telling teams that, yeah, if you're not going to do a deal with us, if you're not going to budge, that's fine. We're going to ride with Vientos potentially as our internal DH option. And while Vientos is doing great against lefties this year especially, I think that this is just a leverage game. I think that they're going out there. They're saying, hey, if you're not going to lower your price, no problem. We're going to use a kid that you want so much, and we're going to see what he can do for us. I think that the Mets are really just trying to play this the best way that they can from a business standpoint, and it makes perfect sense. And For me personally, when looking at the offseason ahead, you don't just have Juan Soto. You have this guy named Shohei Otani. How much longer is he going to be in L.A.? I don't think he's going to get traded at the deadline. I'm sorry for all the fans out there that want to happen. It just feels like it's rushed. Ain't going to happen. But with the Angels in the direction that they are, Shohei, he even said, I remember, towards the end of last year that he wants to win. And he's already kind of fed up with what the Angels and Ari Marino are doing. Can't say I'm surprised there. He's a guy that I know Billy Big Bucks would love more than anyone else. He scouted him so on multiple years prior to them signing him when Epler, of course, was GM with the Angels. So the Mets have their eyes set on a lot of options, not just now, but in the offseason. I think a lot of fans are tending to forget that, and that's definitely something to keep in mind. You're going to give up a lot of prospects. Vientos could truly be a chip there. But when looking at Contreras, as you asked, Joe, for me personally, I know from what's been reported at least that they really like Dom Smith. Again, there's this huge infatuation with Dom still. Maybe it's because of his years of control. Maybe he can find his swing back and a change of scenery. What I do know is that Dom is someone that feels like he has a strong chance to being dealt in a Contreras deal. Thomas Zapucky, who actually had a scoreless ending out of the bullpen. He's done really well transitioning the bullpen right now. He's a name that's been flowed out there that actually multiple teams have interest in. Surprise, surprise, the Cubs are one of them. So maybe he throws Zapucky in there too. Yeah, I would even say J.D. Davis could be feasible. Again, this is a Cubs team and a retool slash rebuild right now. They want to acquire guys that aren't necessarily just top prospects, but also guys that can be controllable and help them in this retool over the next couple of years. I could even see JD thrown out there. I mean, if the Mets are going to part with guys on the roster right now, JD and Dom, we love them to death, but they're the most expendable. There's no denying that. I could see something along those lines, maybe even a clear leaf. You're looking at a prospect that's out of the top five, a guy that doesn't necessarily have a spot on the future for the Mets, one of him or Nick Plummer. There's a lot of different routes the Mets can go for sure. But one thing's certain, I understand why they don't want to part with Vientos. Me personally, I while I'm a prospect hugger, 
I do focus on the Mets right now, having potential to have one of their best years since, I don't know, 86. So when I evaluate that, even with Vientos potentially panning out, the Mets are finally starting to do what Steve Cohen came out and said that they would do, this Dodgers mentality. They're building the farm every single year, which gives them the proper assets to do something big at every deadline or in the offseason. They have the number one draft per MLB pipeline this past year. I feel confident saying that they would be okay if they part with Vientos. I don't think Vientos has a potential long-term future on the Mets outside of DH personally. I don't think he's a guy that defensively, how he projects right now, this is just my opinion at least, I don't think he'll be an everyday first baseman. I think Brett Beatty's ahead of him, has on lock. You're not going to have him much in corner outfit. He's not the one for his defense there. Alonzo has first base unlocked too. So you have Vientos. You look at what his future is. Yes, DH would help. But are the Mets really going to bank on Vientos being that guy down the stretch in the second half, going for playoffs this year with zero experience and hopes that he pans out as that lefty killer like he's been in Syracuse? That's a tall task for someone that, again, doesn't have experience. And this is even coming from someone that whose favorite player up until – you know, right now he still is technically he's Michael Conforto. We saw he broke out, of course, that being in 2015, the World Series. That's something that doesn't necessarily happen always. So for the Mets, I don't think they're banking on it. I don't think they're banking on Vientos. I think this is a leverage game. And while I personally would be okay with parting with them at the right price, I completely understand why the Mets are standing pat and trying to make a statement here. Yeah, no, I mean, Tyler, if you just called yourself. Oh, wait, wait, hold on, Joe. Joe, your, your audio got messed up for a second. Try, can, try to can you hear yeah, me? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, it had that same issue that you had, you know, a couple episodes ago where it was very stacky. Um, uh, maybe want to plug it back out or in. But while you're working on that, uh, Rec, a question to you regarding Vientos: Is there anything that you disagree with there? Especially when you look at, you know, the value of prospects. It's really important for a team, of course, to make sure that they're not giving up the farm every year. But are you in agreement or disagreement on the stance that the Mets, it feels like they're really just trying to make a statement right now and saying that, hey, we're not going to be nearly as easy to work with. We're just giving up top guys like we have been in years past. No, I, I love that. I think that's the the right idea, and I think that's exactly what they are doing. I will say this. Uh, you mentioned Dom Smith. You mentioned J.D. Davis. It's really interesting that so many teams are still so interested in those guys, exactly. particularly Dom Smith. And I'm not saying that because they shouldn't be. I love Dom, and I think he can still be a, a really good player in this league. Um, but I love it because there are some teams who are talking more about retooling than completely blowing it up. And so those guys become pertinent. They become important, and they could be pieces. And that's why I think if you can make trades with those guys, it doesn't have to be the perfect uh, fit. It doesn't have to be Contreras. I don't need Contreras because if you can trade Dom and a couple lower end prospects for a JD Martinez or for a Christian Vasquez or for another piece that really fits, that makes sense, go out and do it. Go out and do that because now you get to hold on to all those assets that you're building up and you get to make your team better and you get to give that guy, Dom Smith, an opportunity to go somewhere and play more. And realistically, as people, these GMs, I know that I know Billy Epler. I know he cares about his guys. He cares about these players and he wants to see them go and do well somewhere else, even though it may be against them. He wants to give them that opportunity. So I love that that's an option out there on the table for, for the Mets as well. And it, it just really speaks to the depth that they were able to build through free agency over the last couple of years, even though they don't have him coming up through the minor leagues because there's these guys are still uh, you know, talked about, there's still potential commodities that they could trade away and get some really good pieces for. 
Love that. So, Joe, going back to you regarding Vientos and the Mets overall, what's your final stance on the Vientos stuff going on right now? And two, what is the main deal that you hope to see the Mets do versus what they may more likely do, in your opinion, as uh, you asked me earlier? Well, first off, am I am I back? Yes, you yes, you're good. Okay, yep, cool, cool, perfect. cool. Um, so, yeah, so this is – I'll tell you exactly what I want, and then it was what I was going to ask Anthony, actually, if, if you would do the same – I want to put a package together for the Cubs. I want Wilson Contreras. I want David Robertson. And I would love to do that with, you know, Dom Smith, J.D. Davis, maybe Thomas Zafuki, like you mentioned. I don't know if realistically that will happen. So if Mark Vientos is who we have to send over to make that happen, I will do it. Because like I said, you know, Alonzo's got first on lock. Beatty, I believe, is going to be the guy at third after Escobar's contract expires. And, you know, for Vientos to be some sort of platoon DH, especially this year, I mean, I think he can mash. And I really do like him. I'm not, you know, again, yeah, none of this is personal. But I just, you know, same reason I don't want to see Alvarez this year because we're trying to go all in for a World Series. We can't be, you know, taking a chance on experiments right here in the 2022 season. That's for spring training next year. So, you know, Vientos is, I would say, the only guy in the top five that if we have to send him to Chicago to get Contreras, who can not only catch, but Anthony, like you said, be a DH. You know, I mean, the way I see things going against righties, it would be Vogelback DH and Contreras catching. And then against lefties, you can DH Contreras and have Nito, who is one of the best defensive catchers in the entire league, behind the dish. I mean, to me, that just sounds too good to be true. And at the end of the day, if it costs Vientos, it costs Vientos. But I'd rather have parades over prospects any day. Anthony, would you do that trade? Would you give up Vientos? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I look, I think what it comes down to, there's value bases, you know, that these GMs go through when they when they talk about some of these trades. I certainly would consider that because you have to know that in order to get better, you're going to have to give up pieces. And yeah, you can't just give up all big league guys. Uh, I do think it's nice that you have some of those guys available to potentially lower the price. But if you had to give up a Mark Vientos, of course, you can certainly swallow that because you know the return you're getting could potentially be what you need to get over the top, to get to the top of the mountain, to win the World Series. And I really think that obviously that's what the Mets are trying to do. But when you get a, a two pieces, if you could get Contreras and Robertson, um, you know, I'm not head over heels for Robertson. Look, he's a very good pitcher. I like him. He would be a good piece in the bullpen. I don't think he's the last piece they would need in the bullpen if they did that. But that being said, uh, look, yes, you would certainly consider giving that up. I do think that Beatty, um, and I'm just just going to go back to something you said about Escobar and his contract. I do think that Beatty, the way he's swinging it right now and how hot he's gotten in double A, I really like this kid. And I'm really excited to see him play uh, an athletic third base and potentially be in that lineup at some point next season. Cause I think that there's a very good chance that that happens. Yeah. I'm actually of the camp. I agree with you a thousand percent. I'm almost wondering if maybe they move Escobar in the off season. I don't think they will, but if Beatty, you know, maybe they call him up to triple a here for the remainder of 2022. If he can still hit there, I don't really want to wait till 2024. I kind of want to see Brett Beatty next season. Oh, and that I'm glad that you brought up uh, talking about Beatty for a second because I've been asked a lot on my channel, why haven't the Mets moved Brady, uh, Beatty up yet when he's been killing it in AA? And I think uh, for the most part, this probably holds true. It could be indicative on the future of Mark Vientos right now because Vientos, while he's been playing DH more lately, has been commanding third there in AAA. So depending on what his status will be after August 2nd, I'd imagine that not long after that, regardless, is when we will probably see Beatty moved up to AAA. 
Yeah. To no, touch and, on that real quick, to touch yeah. on that real quick, when you put a guy like Beatty with Vientos and AAA, you're you're not going to be able to play both of them at third base every day, obviously, yeah. or or ever. So one of them has to move, which will be Vientos, and that could lower his trade value if they are considering trading him. Mm-hmm. So you want him to stay at third base. You want him to continue getting those reps so that you're marketing him as a you know a potential third baseman who, although he's not great defensively at third base, obviously can hit and could be your everyday third baseman. So they want to be able to make that case when they're trying to trade that guy away. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Anthony, look, this is my last question for you. We've spent so much time talking about hitters and Contreras and JD, but you kind of snuck in there that Robertson's really not your most desired guy. So I, I want to know why is that? And then when it comes to the reliever market, who, who do you have your eye on more so than Robertson? Because I don't know about Tyler, but for me, Robertson's my top guy. That's why I love that Cubs package so much. But for you, why not Robertson? And if not him, who? Robertson's very um, reliant at this stage in his career on his cut fastball and four-seam fastball. And to me, th- those are contact pitches for the most part. I know he's thrown very well this year. I know he's been great for the Cubs, but – to me, that just lends itself in the in the playoffs to having tendencies and to guys being able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, we've seen him do well so far, certainly this season for the Cubs. You've seen him do well in the past for sure, you know, on playoff runs, whether it was with the Yankees or other teams. So I know it's in there. He's getting older. And I just when, when you have someone who's so reliant on one pitch and it's not it's not a Mariano, Mariano Rivera type cutter. Um, it's not that dominant. It just that scares me a little bit. I, I just think they need to diversify a little bit more in the bullpen. I think a solid left-handed arm would be great. Uh, you know, you did mention Jake Diekman, although he has had a very up and down year. His stuff is awesome, and I think it'd be interesting to see him. But it's another guy who does walk. You know, he does walk. He exactly. can go through. You know, get wild and walk guys. Um, it's but it's really hard to find relievers nowadays who don't go through that at times. So I think. If you throw enough stuff at the wall, eventually it sticks. And I'm okay with bringing in a few arms and just seeing how it goes. But that's going to depend on how many pieces they can move around outside of that off the roster so they can get these guys on. Tyler, what about you from a pitching perspective? Who's your guy? Um, I really like David Robertson. Uh, I've said that time and time again. I just yeah. think for a guy that, again, has that championship caliber – Knows what it takes to win in New York. Not that, you know, history means everything because it surely doesn't. I think, honestly, a good example could be, depending on how he does down the stretch, in Adam Adovino. You know, he's someone that I personally don't love in big spots. I know that Rec can attest to this because especially you've seen in the past couple of years where either Red Sox or the Yankees has really blown things in big moments. So I think if you combat that well, then great. But Adovino has really changed things up a little bit with that walk rate. And that's something where I feel like if Robertson comes to Queens, that could be another similarity as well. He's a guy that, again, gets lefty batters out just as well as righties. I think that's huge because the Mets, they've proven this year that you don't need a southpaw to have a lefty-on-lefty situation to get these lefty batters out. You know, Joely has been inconsistent, to say the least. Chase and Shreve, how you doing? He's out of here for a reason. So they, they really don't have much there right now. And I will say... I don't think the Mets need to add to the bullpen, maybe as much as others think. And the real reason why is they're going to put Pierce in the pen. That feels like a likelihood right now. They have him in the minors, but that just really because they want to make sure that he's starting and will be pitching as one of the two pitchers in the doubleheader next week against the Braves. So that makes perfect sense. He'll probably go to the bullpen after that, I'd imagine. But then you have Tyler McGill. I love McGill's chances of just being absolutely huge as either one inning shutdown guy 
or multi-ane reliever. And then you have this guy named Trevor May who's coming back next Wednesday. So just like that, you're taking out Nagosik, you're taking out Lopez, and you're taking out one of Tommy Hunter or Jolie Rodriguez. So at that point, you really only have room at that juncture, if you're basing things on this type of bullpen configuration for one reliever, if so, I think Robertson is a guy. And if it's not Robertson, I'm a huge Andrew Chafin fan. I just think what we've seen from him, I want him at last year's trade deadline while with Chris Bryant. We got two Cubs and they were two guys I kind of wasn't expecting until the last minute. And Baez and Williams love Trev and what he's done. But yeah, I really like Andrew Chafin. I think his control is big. Uh, that's why I personally like him a little, a little bit more than what we've seen from Michael Fulmer the former New York Met and the Jonas Cespedes deal uh, with Detroit right now. And same thing with Gregory Soto. Soto's going to cost you more because he has a couple years of control. High flyer has a lot of ELO for a lefty, especially 27 years of age, but he's just a little erratic. And for me, I just want more certainties with control. I know Robertson isn't as much of a certainty as Chafin, but either of the two, and I would really be happy as a Mets fan. You know, it's funny because you did mention that our bullpen is pretty solid. And, you know, obviously, Tyler, you know that I loved and trusted Colin Holderman in almost any situation. So I was upset to see him go, you know, and and then two other guys that I love. And you mentioned one of them is a guy who would automatically be sent down. But I love Yuan Lopez. I think what he's done has been great. And I think Adonis Medina is another guy who so slept on maybe not this year, but I think Lopez and Medina can really be parts of this bullpen moving forward in the future, really integral parts of this pen. I will say before we wrap it up, Robertson's my top guy, but he wasn't about a week ago. It was Daniel Bard and Anthony. What the hell's going on in Colorado? I mean, they don't want to pay anyone. <laughs> can you can, explain can that? Can we can we do a full episode on what's going on in Colorado? Can we just <laughs> we do, could do a full a lot episode on, on the on last like five years in Colorado and what they've been doing? Because it doesn't make any sense. I don't know what they're doing. This guy. I love his story. I love him as a person. He was actually a coach with uh, the Diamondbacks when I was there uh, in 18. Um, So I saw him come through in the minor league system and then helping guys out. He had his little computer out. Wasn't even (laughs) pitching at the time. So I love his story. I love what he's doing. He's a really good person. Um, I just, and I love that he got a deal. Good for him. Two years, 19 million. That's awesome. Um, I just, I don't understand it from the Colorado Rockies perspective. Like what you weren't, you're not ready to compete. You weren't ready to compete this year, even though, I don't know, maybe you thought you were after signing Chris Bryant. You're not going to be ready next year. That team, they don't have enough young talent. They don't have enough pitching. They don't have really any pieces. I, I just, I really, I like the way they play the game. They they play hard. I like Connor Joe. I mean, I could talk about a couple guys on that team, but it's just really, they're not ready. And signing him to a two-year deal unless they were trying to raise his trade value because he's going to be controllable for two more years. I don't know, but I don't think that's what they were going for and doesn't make sense to me at all. Is he really going to have a better season next year than what he's doing right now? I feel like no. that this was a time to max out on his yeah. value, but yeah. that's here nor there. Let let the Rockies continue doing what they're doing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's at least my it, word. It's bizarre. They don't want to pay Tula. They don't want to pay Story. They didn't want to pay Cargo, <laughs> but they're, they're going to pay Bard when they could actually get a return. Go figure. Go figure. Guys, look, I've said it a few times this episode. The trade deadline is less than 48 hours away. By the time this episode's actually out there, it'll be less than 36 hours away. We've got an episode coming to you again Wednesday morning. We'll be talking Jake's first start back. Probably something absurd that Scherzer did against the Nationals because you just know it's going to happen. And, of course, whatever the Mets do at the deadline. So for Anthony Recker, for my man Tyler Ward, I'm Joe Serralo. Thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of Believe in Queens. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.